Our scripture reading is going to come from Hebrews chapter 9 and Revelation 20. So Hebrews chapter 9, 23 uh, through 28, and you're welcome to begin making your way uh, there in your Bible. And the uh, scripture references and the page numbers will be up on the screen here. And so we're going to be in Hebrews 9, and we're also going to be moving over to Revelation 20, verse 7. So let's stand together as you're making your way uh, to Hebrews 9 for the reading of, of God's Word this morning. Hebrews 9, 23 through 28, page 1006 in your pew Bible if you uh, need uh, a pew Bible this morning. Hebrews 9. Uh, Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly rites, the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters into the holy place every year with blood not his own. But then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Then we turn over to Revelation chapter 20, begin with verse 7, and we'll move uh, through to the end of the chapter. Revelation 20, verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they, were, they will be tormented day and night forever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The word of the Lord. Some of you are like, the word of the Lord, I think, thanks be to God. It's a sobering passage. This morning we are drawing to a close, getting closer to the end of our sermon series, All Things New, the Story of the Bible and the Healing of the World. We're actually going to finish it on Christmas Eve. So if you want to hear the end, of this, the end of the Bible story, make sure you're here for our Christmas Eve service. And as I've been mentioning the past few Sundays, we're using this season of Advent, which celebrates Jesus' first coming at Christmas, to point us forward to Jesus' second coming, his second Advent at the end of the age. And the close of the sermon series and Jesus' second Advent has brought us to the book of Revelation. Back two years ago, and I was 
mapping out the sermon series and knew we would take two years and figuring out how to connect it. I knew that we would be hitting the book of Revelation during the season of Advent this year. And I was, I confess, naively looking forward to it. Revelation and Advent, oh, that, that's cool, that'll be exciting. But then last month, as I began to prepare the Advent sermons from the book of Revelation, it became apparent to me how challenging it was going to be to tie together Advent and Revelation. The first Advent of Jesus brings happy and warm feelings. God's love, candlelight, shepherds, angels singing about peace on earth, the Yule log. Who doesn't love the Yule log? We don't even know what the Yule log is, but it, <laughs> it sounds very good and warm. It's all very beautiful. But the second advent of Jesus brings war and judgment and hellfire. And angels too, but they're not singing about peace on earth in the book of Revelation. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, you know that the whole book is filled with the wrath of God. You've got the seven seals of God's wrath, the seven trumpets of God's wrath, the seven bowls of God's wrath. There's a lot of wrath going on in the book of Revelation. And here we are this morning reading about the final judgment and people being thrown into the lake of fire. And it's not very adventy, to be honest with you. But this is how the story of the Bible ends, and there's no shying away from the conclusion of the Bible's story. But here's the thing. While the first advent was all about God's love and peace on earth, the second advent is also all about God's love and peace on earth. And if there's one message of the book of Revelation, it's this. God loves his people. And I'm not just saying that in kind of a way to be pastorally coy. That really is the message of the book of Revelation. God loves his people. So we're going to get into our two texts to see how this is true and then what that means for us today. So we're going to look first at Hebrews 9, which is going to help us kind of frame up our reading of Revelation. And then we're going to get into the book of Revelation itself and see the wrath and judgments of God. So Hebrews chapter 9, you can turn back there to Hebrews 9 if you are not still there. And in Hebrews 9, we're picking up midstream in a passage. All right, so the author has, all throughout the book of Hebrews really, but he's all been extolling the superiority of Jesus' priesthood over and against the Old Testament Levitical priesthood. And in verse 25, we read that unlike the Old Testament priests who had to offer atoning sacrifices year after year, Jesus appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. His one sacrifice on the cross was sufficient to forgive us our sins and to renew us from the inside out. And this is why we sing about the redeeming blood of Jesus, paying a debt we could never pay, forgiving us all the guilt we could never get free from, renewing us, 
making us alive, transforming us, recreating us. It truly is worthy of singing about. And all of that is the work of Jesus at his first advent. But then we might ask, if his first advent was sufficient to put away sin, then why is Jesus coming again? What's the point of the second advent? And verse 27 tells us the answer. Jesus' second coming is not about saving his people from their sins, but about judgment. Look at verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. So Jesus is going to come a second time with respect to judgment. But then look what the author says in verse 28. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now wait, you might say, I thought that was the first advent. I thought the first advent, he came to save us from our sins. Save us from our sins, yes. But his second advent is not with reference to the sins of his people. His second advent is with reference to the sins of those who are sinning against his people. And that's why his second advent is an advent of judgment. It's an advent of deliverance. It's an advent of vindication. It's an advent of rescue for those who are eagerly awaiting him. So Jesus' description at the end of the age, we can see this, for instance, in passages like Matthew 24. It's in other places as well. But Jesus' description of the end of the age, just prior to his second advent, is a picture of increasing persecution and harm done by the devil and the evil powers of the world against the people of God, against the church, the bride of Christ. Now, some of us here in North America, the 21st century, I know we can think that we are currently living at the end of the ages in the midst of end-of-the-age persecution against the people of God. We can have a little bit of a beleaguered mindset. I grew up in a sort of a Christianity like that, you know, where you, you're always sort of looking with suspicion against the world that's always out to get you, right? And every new decision the politicians make, you see, aha, it's the mark of the beast, they're coming for us, you know. But uh, I think the real martyrs of the church just roll their eyes at the 21st, North American, 21st century North American church. I can picture getting to the wedding supper of the Lamb at that great day, sitting next to some 14-year-old girl from the second century and trying to impress her with how hard it was in North America in the 21st century. I mean, like, oh, it was so hard. There I was pastoring this church. You know, it was, there was the pandemic, and we had to wear masks, you know, and then, like, people couldn't agree, and I got sent mean emails, you know, and she's like, oh, I know, I know what it's like. My mother and I were eaten by lions in the Coliseum, you know, man, it's just, I feel your pain, you know. I think we're all going to be hanging our heads sheepishly when we actually meet a real martyr for Christ, right? Because right now, it's just not that bad for us. It's just not that bad. However besieged you might feel, it's not that bad. But it was that bad in history past. 
And it is that bad in certain parts of the world today. And it will be that bad the world over for the people of God in the future, ere the world's end. And it's in that context, against the backdrop of the devil's full and global fury against the people of God, that the author of Hebrews says that Jesus will come to save his people who are eagerly waiting for him. So what will that salvation look like? Well, it looks like the book of Revelation. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's a picture of Jesus coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. The book of Revelation is all about the saving and vindicating judgments of Jesus. And Revelation 20, which we've read, is the final hammer throw of God's judgment. It is the last blow against the powers of evil. So let's turn now back to Revelation 20. Pick up our passage there in verse 7. There are two truths that I want us to see from this text here in Revelation 20. I'm going to divide the passage in half, really. 7, verses 7 through 10, and then 11 through 14. And the first truth that I want us to see comes from Revelation 7, 27 through 10. And it's this, that wrath, wrath is the vindicating love of God. Wrath is the vindicating love of God. Here in Revelation 27 through 10, we're seeing the demise of the Satan, the adversary of humanity. If you were with us two years ago when we began the sermon series, or if you've read the book of Genesis, you'll recall that the story of the Bible gets started way back in Genesis chapter 3 with the great adversary, the dragon, who makes frequent appearances all throughout the book of Revelation, waging war against humanity. The one who had been appointed by God to protect and serve us instead deceived us. And he stole our throne, and ever since that time, humanity has lived under the adversary's reign of terror. And the power of sin and death took root in the soil of the world and flowered as weeds of pain and suffering and hurt and violence and injustice. And this is what we have lived with since that day. And all throughout the story of the Bible... The devil, in his unlawful tyranny over the world, has repeatedly sought to oppress God's people. And here in Revelation 20, at the end of the age, we see the devil make one last tyrannical grasp to harm God's people. He gathers together his might from the four corners of the earth so that he can wage open war against God's people. Verse 9 tells us that his hosts are vast beyond counting and that they march for battle over the broad plains of the earth to surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But then the fire of heaven falls and consumes them and the devil who deceived them into rebellion and war is thrown into the lake of fire. 
And to quote Tolkien, thus ends Sauron, the Dark Lord, and his kingdom of evil. But note the word that is used to describe the city of God's people, the camp of the saints. What is the word that is used to describe that city? Someone shout it out. Beloved. Beloved by who? By themselves? Beloved by God. The Satan has provoked the mama bear. And God responds with wrath. But do you see that his wrath is actually an expression of his vindicating love? His wrath falls because of his love for his people. And this is how the wrath of God is framed up all throughout the book of Revelation. Listen to some of these passages from earlier in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, gives us a sort of uh, framing for thinking about how God's wrath will function in the book of Revelation. John says that when he opened this fifth seal... I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? John gets this vision of the saints under the altar that have been martyred for their faith. Their blood has been shed and they're crying out, O Lord, how long? How long until your judgments come upon the earth to avenge our blood? And then the rest of the book of the Revelation is God coming to avenge the blood of his saints. Revelation 11, 16 through 18. And the 24 elders who sat on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who was and is and was to come. For you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the, de- and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. There is this great concern that those who are destroying God's creation themselves be destroyed to put an end to their destruction. Revelation 16, 4-7, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Again, this concern for the vindicating love of God because of the persecution that has come against God's people. Revelation 19, 1 through 3. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute, the city Babylon, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So all throughout the book of Revelation, the judgment of God, the wrath of God are falling upon the wickedness of the world because the wickedness of the world is harming his people. What we see here in Revelation is really what we see all throughout the scriptures. 
We began the service this morning reading from Psalm 136 for a responsive reading. We can go further down into Psalm 136, and the psalmist ties together the steadfast love of the Lord with the wrath of God. Listen to some of these things that the psalmist says later in Psalm 136. He speaks of the God who overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea for his steadfast love endures forever, who struck down great kings for his steadfast love endures forever, and killed mighty kings for his steadfast love endures forever. Sion, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. Og, king of Bashan, his steadfast love endures forever. These were, these were kings that had opposed themselves against God's people. And God had come and struck them down in vindicating love for his people. They were an expression of God's steadfast love. And he gave their land as a heritage for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to, his, to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. And he rescued us from our foes for his steadfast love endures forever. So often we think that God's wrath is all about himself. That he's wrathful because he's concerned about how he's been wronged. Or that he's a stern cosmic rule keeper whose job is to punish everyone who falls afoul of his rules. A sort of uncompromising Inspector Javert from Les Mis. But that's not the Bible's picture of God's wrath. God is not to be trifled with, to be sure. But what the book of Revelation makes clear is that God's wrath is an expression of his vindicating love for his people. So listen to the words of Thomas Aquinas. He was a a brilliant medieval theologian. He says this. He says, To bear with patience wrongs done to one's self is a mark of perfection. But to bear with patience wrongs done to someone else is a mark of imperfection and even of actual sin. Listen to the words of Gerald Heastan, that brilliant 21st century Oak Park pastor. (laughs) To turn the other cheek, to turn the other cheek when we are struck, that's Christian. But to turn the other cheek when someone else is struck, that's just looking away. Our Lord bore with great patience the wrongs done to himself. But he will not bear with great patience the wrongs done to his people. He loves us too much to look away when we are being wronged. In a sin-sick world roiling under the recalcitrant tyranny of the devil, it cannot be otherwise. Love must respond to evil with vindicating wrath. And that's why efforts to defang God, to separate him from his wrath, to make him more loving, ultimately fail. Because efforts to strip God of his wrath ultimately end up creating a senile and impotent God, unworthy of worship, a God whose love becomes meaningless precisely because it has no power to save. So Christian, do not judge God for his wrath. Or do not speak of it in embarrassed tones. He is wrathful because he loves. He is wrathful 
because he loves you. Now, it's necessary to say that God's vindicating love is most fully expressed at the end of the age at Christ's second advent. We get a foretaste of it now, but, but in this present age, we still live under the tyranny of the dark Lord. And so we cry out with the souls under the altar, How long, O Lord? And we pray with the church throughout the ages, Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want him to come, to vindicate us, to right the wrongs. But even as we cry and pray, we cry and pray in hope. Because Jesus has promised to redeem us. He has promised to unwind all the suffering caused by the enemy. To right every wrong to heal every hurt, to vanquish every injustice, to heal the nations, and to make all things new. His vindicating love is so powerful that it can even reach all the way down to the depths of the grave and pull us back up. And not only us, but our whole world as well. And some of us, I think, uniquely this morning, uniquely need to be reminded of the hope of Jesus' vindicating love. Perhaps the tyranny of the adversary has dealt you a particularly painful blow. The loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a parent, the loss of a good and worthy dream that will never come to fruition in this life. A broken relationship, perhaps a sickness, maybe the ravages of old age. Jesus sees and he knows. He knows what pain the adversary has wrought in your life. And he is not blind to your suffering and your sorrow and your loss. The psalmist tells us that he holds the tears we cry at night in his bottle. And we can rest safely in his vindicating love. He will ride to your rescue ere the end. Even if you have to wait until the end, he will undo the devil's work of pain and suffering in your life. I don't know how, I don't know in what ways, but I do know that your pain and your suffering and your sorrow arouses his wrathful love. And then in the last day, his wrath will be the energy that drives forward the day of your redemption. Even now, his righteous anger builds on your behalf in anticipation of that day. He loves you protectively, fiercely. He loves you like a mother loves an infant son, like a father loves his precious daughter, like a husband loves his wife, like a mama bear loves her cubs. And God have mercy 
on those who stand between him and his people. Which leads to the second thing I think that we need to see from this passage from verses 11 through 15. Hell is the final triumph of God's vindicating love. In verses 11 through 15, we see the last of God's judgment. A great white throne appears to John in his vision. It is the very throne of God Almighty. The scene is so overpowering that earth and sky flee away. There's no place for them in the presence of God's majesty. God is all in all. And here at last, the final infallible word of judgment is spoken. Here there will be no miscarriage of justice. This is the court beyond which there can be no appeal. The one true, fair, and equitable court that does not and cannot err. And here is the judgment that sees past all human pretense and posturing. This is the judgment, to use the words from Hebrews 9, that is living and active, that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joint and marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. A judgment before which no creature is hidden from God's sight, and before whom all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Think soberly on that day. What God declares publicly about you on that day will be the definitive word that reveals you not only to the world, but that reveals you to yourself. You will know yourself in the last day. No more self-deceit. No more lies to yourself to help you sleep better at night. No more telling yourself what you need to hear. You will not be able to hide from the truth of who you are. It's a sobering and for many of us terrifying thought. And this judgment will be universal. All will be judged. No one escapes it. Verse 13 tells us that the sea gives up its dead. Death and Hades give up their dead. And everyone, small and great, are brought before this great tribunal. And there they are judged according to two books. And the first sets of books are recorded all the deeds of the dead. But there is a second book. And praise God, there is a second book. It is the Lamb's book of life. And any whose names are not found written in this second book, they are thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet and the devil have been thrown. And I know the doctrine of hell is a hard and difficult doctrine for our age. It's not always been a hard and difficult doctrine. There have been other ages and seasons in the history of the world where hell was taken as a given. 
But in our day, the judgment of hell has fallen on hard times. The whole idea of judgment has fallen on hard times. And God's judgment with hell is the consummate example of judgment. And it is seen as standing opposed to God's love, but not so. Not so. Hell is the final triumph of God's vindicating love for his people. Hell is God's great and final statement. Enough. My people have suffered enough. No more. In the final judgment of hell, the loving wrath of God on behalf of his people will consume all that threatens them. All that is evil, all that is wrong, all that is oppressive and tyrannical, even death and Hades themselves are thrown into the fire and made an end of. God will not suffer the presence of evil in his new creation precisely because his people have already suffered enough. God is long-suffering. He is a God of second and third and fourth and seven times 70 chances. But he will not be long-suffering for eternity. Those who ultimately refuse to repent and turn to the Lord for forgiveness and redemption, those who will not hearken to Christ's call, those who insist on being their own sovereigns, what can be left for them in the end but the judgment of God? C.S. Lewis tackled this question of hell in a very compelling chapter. He writes these words at the end of his chapter. He says, In the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? to wipe out their past sins and, at all costs, to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help. But he has done so already on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgiven. To leave them alone, alas, I am afraid that is what he does. God offers forgiveness and redemption freely to all. He holds out his love to any who want it, but not all of us want it. Some would rather be left alone to go their own way. And if we will not be parted from our sin, what more can be done with us? But some of us do want to be parted from our sin. And that brings us back full circle to Jesus' first advent. And here as we approach communion. This morning we sit between the two advents of Jesus. And only those who have benefited from the grace of Jesus' first advent will benefit from the redemption of his second. It's only through faith in the shed blood of Jesus and his broken body that our names are written in the book of life. Jesus absorbed into himself the judgment of God on our behalf. He who knew no sin, Paul tells us, became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So I ask you this morning, is your name written in the Lamb's book of life? And if it is, 
And as we come together to celebrate communion, communion is for you. Communion is the great reminder of the cost that has been paid to free us from our sin. What has bound us to Christ and has made us partakers of his very life. If you belong to Jesus this morning, then take communion this morning in the sure knowledge that God loves you with a zealous and fierce love. Be comforted and rest in the hope of his vindicating love. If you are not yet a Christian this morning, then I invite you to use this time to consider your relationship to the vindicating love of God. It can be a comfort for you too, but only if you repent and humbly receive it. In the book of Numbers, we read of a man named Korah who rose up in rebellion against the prophet Moses. And Korah and his rebellion pressed so hard against Moses that Moses' life was in jeopardy. And then God stepped in to deliver Moses. The Lord split the ground beneath the feet of Korah and his allies, and the earth swallowed them up. But Moses knew what was coming, and just before the vindicating wrath of God fell upon Korah and his company, Moses called out to the people that were standing near them and warned them to move away from Korah, lest they be swept up in Korah's wrath, Korah's judgment. And as it was in the days of Korah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus tells us that hell was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. It was not prepared for humanity. But those who insist on their sin, who reject the love and life of God, will ultimately suffer the devil's fate. At the end of the age, when the sky splits in two, and the Lord descends, the grace of the first advent will come to an end. And the flood of God's rescuing wrath will fall upon the wickedness of the devil and his world. Do not be swept up into the devil's judgment. I invite our servers or our uh, musicians to come up. They're going to play for us. If you didn't get an element uh, and you want to take communion, we have some servers here who can you just raise your hand and, and we can slip some out uh, to you. But I invite you, as I distribute communion to the folks here on the stage in a moment, to reflect on the vindicating love of God. Alas, we are not just innocent bystanders, are we? Who just get swept up in someone else's judgment. The Bible says in Romans 3.23 that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That there is none righteous, not even one. What bad news that would be for us. But then in Romans 6.23, the scriptures go on to say that the, even though the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. So if you're already a believer this morning, I invite you to marvel at the gift of God's vindicating love expressed to you in Christ. And if you are not a Christian yet this morning, I invite you, even where you are seated, to receive the free gift 
of grace that God holds out to you. You can do so even simply with a prayer. It's a posture of a heart, ultimately. It's not through great works that we do that make us worthy of God's grace and love. It is simply through the surrender and submission and a recognition of our need for him. Maybe even something as simple as these words, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life and make me new. I give myself wholly to you. Romans 10, 9 told that if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. It's as simple as that. I encourage you even this morning to open your heart to whatever the Lord is speaking into your life. Father, thank you that you have given us Christ who is the full expression of your vindicating love and that in him All things are made new. That all the pain and the sorrow and the loss that we have experienced through the tyranny of our mortal enemy are made right. God, thank you that we partake in that rightness even now. The foretaste of your vindicating love that we have, the gift of the Spirit and the person of Christ. It's in his name we trust. Amen.